Corinthians chapter 12 and into 13. Paul is writing um, a chapter that for many people, uh, they act like it doesn't fit with what Paul has been discussing. Because in chapter 12, he's talking about spiritual gifts. In chapter 14, he's talking about spiritual gifts. And right smack in the middle of that, he talks about love. And some people might protest and say that doesn't belong. But the truth of the matter is, is as Paul always does, he takes an opportunity to address situations in the church that need to be addressed. And as he is explaining the diversity of gifts in chapter 12, and he will get specifically to the practice of those gifts in 14, he has to put the brakes and pump the brakes for a minute and go, and by the way, Corinthians, there's a big problem in your church because you are heralding and proclaiming gifts above love. So if you want to know what chapter 13 is about, it's simply a rebuke by Paul in a great, beautiful, subtle way for Paul to remind the Corinthians that they have failed to display brotherly love and exercising spiritual gifts. And it's a challenge for us in the church today. Even though we might not see the practice of the gifts by which Paul is referring, it is a challenge to us specifically that we would not allow certain things in our church to divide us and keep us from displaying a Christ-exalting, God-reflecting love between one another. That there would be unity, and that unity would be built and constructed upon the bedrock of God's beautiful love. And that's why we get this amazing list and description of God's love. We won't get to those verses today. Full disclaimer. Because we, we need to begin by looking at what God uh, tells us, how he communicates his love toward us. So that we can understand it. So that we can know it. And therefore understand how to practice it. Paul gives us a great example in verses 4 through 7. We will look at that soon. But before we get there, let's see what Paul is doing and what he is communicating. Let's start in chapter 12 if we can, so that we can kind of catch ourselves up. And be reminded that Paul, again, has talked about the diversity of the gifts in the body. We all have different gifts. If we are regenerated by the Holy Spirit, we just sang about that. We've been given new birth, so therefore we are changed. And upon our transformation in Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we are given gifts by that Spirit to serve one another in the church. And Paul, remember, talks about the metaphor of the body, and he talks about the diversity of those gifts and how every one of those gifts are necessary for the body in their uniqueness, in their diversity. And so that there should be no reason for us to divide when we have this diversity, but celebrate the diversity and strive for unity. And Paul says in verse 31, but earnestly desire the greatest gifts or the greater gifts, and I will still show you a more excellent way. Now, Paul is challenging them 
to desire the greater gifts. And what he means by this is that they are wrapped up in gifts that Paul doesn't necessarily, uh, I guess, elevate in the importance of the church. Particularly what we will see is that they are making a big deal about the practice of speaking in tongues. And so in chapter 14, Paul will deal with prophecy and speaking in tongues, particularly because this is what is causing division in the Corinthian church. Matter of fact, if you look back in Paul's uh, descriptions and, 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 and explanations and references to the gifts in verse 29, we can start there, or verse 28. And God has appointed in the church, this is chapter 12, and God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healings, helps, administrations, various kinds of tongues. Notice tongues is at the end of that list. All are not apostles, are they? All are not prophets, are they? All are not teachers, are they? All are not workers of miracles, all are they? Do not, or all do not have gifts of healing, do they? All do not speak with tongues, do they? All do not interpret those tongues, do they? But earnestly desire the greater gifts. Paul is placing tongues at the end for, I think, a specific reason, because the Corinthians have elevated it above everything else. And Paul saying, no, let me show you the greater gifts. You desire those, you can earnestly desire those, but let me show you the way in which you do that. He calls it the excellent way. What is that excellent way? Making the foundation of any gifts or any diversity in the church as a whole must be rooted in the love of God or there will be disunity. If we, if we have such a squabble with our differences and fail to show love with one another, then we will be a dissected and divided church. But when we celebrate diversity, when we celebrate the gifts that God has given each one of us, then we are by, in that action demonstrating the love of God. And so this is Paul's comparison. Reminding these believers in Corinth to root their practice in exercising spiritual gifts in the love of God. But he wants to address in verses 1 through 3 of chapter 13 how they are devoid of that love. So our first point and only point in the sermon today will be the fact that the Corinthians are devoid of love. He gives us three verses here in what I would say is a rebuke in <clears throat> the actions of these Corinthians to challenge them on the fact that they have lost their love for one another in the practice of spiritual gifts. He says, if I speak with the tongues of men and angels, but do not have love, I become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I, if I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have all faith as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all of my possessions to feed the poor, if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. 
Now, the foundation of this chapter is the love of God. And we understand that the love of God is, if you've often, oftentimes heard it, the, the Greek word agape or agape is the, probably the better way to pronounce that word. And what's interesting about understanding that Greek word is that Paul took a, uh, a word that was, was not used very often in Greek language outside of biblical language or biblical writings. He took an obscure Greek word for love, and he used that word for one particular and important reason. The reason was, is because every other word that the Greeks used for love had a negative and worldly connotation. For example, you know that the word eros is a, is a word that was not only the name of a, a, a god to which the Greeks and Romans worshipped, but it was a word that focused on the lusts of our flesh that were carried out. So to have an eros love is to have a lustful, desiring love. You've heard of Philia, uh, or uh, we, we hear the word Philadelphia, the, the, the city of brotherly love. And Philia is a, is a form of a love between friends. That would do for the Apostle Paul. And there were other words as well, but Paul settled on agape because it was obscure. And he could define this word as referencing the very aspects of God's love in which he reveals to us in Scripture. Setting it apart from worldly action, identifying God's love particularly and solely in this use as he describes it to us. And so we read in like the book of John, John uses the word agape to describe the love of God. And not only his gospel, but in 1 John chapter 4, and we're very familiar with this passage, John chapter, 1 John chapter 4, 7 through 11. As we think about the definition of God's love in this word agape, Beloved, he says, let us love one another, for love is from God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not know God, the one who does not love, excuse me, does not know God, for God is love. John lays it out in very clear and distinct terms in 1 John in such a way that we might understand the correlation between God as he reveals himself to us in relationship to his actions that he displays in the world. How do we know God's love? We know God's love by the way he acts upon this world. And he acts upon the world in sacrifice, in commitment, in loyalty, in an unconditional love, in covenant. All these aspects whereby God casts upon us compassion and mercy and grace, all these underlying aspects of his love, without condition. And he demonstrates a faithfulness in that love so that we can understand not only his love, but we can understand how to love others. Verse 9, by this love of God was manifested in us, that God sent His only begotten Son into the world 
so that we might live through him. There he is, John, defining for us God's love. That we can see his love demonstrated most chiefly and most importantly in the very begotten Son of God who was sent into the world so that he might give his life as a sacrifice so that we might live through him. Verse 10, in this love, not that we loved God, there's the unconditional nature of it, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Church, the foundation, the foundation of Paul's message, or excuse me, John's message is this. If the love of God is born in you, you will love other people. Now I want you to see the connection here to Paul's message. Because Paul is talking about love, not to unbelievers, but to people who belong to the church. And people who belong to the church belong to them by the transformative power of the Spirit. So that love is a natural action by which we manifest to other people because God has manifested that love to us. It is literally, we are like uh, God's conduit of love that he shares with us that we pass to other people. It should be natural for us. And so the rebuke that Paul gives to the Corinthians is a challenging and eye-opening rebuke because they have not shown that love. There are people in the Corinthian church who are not displaying that love, and therefore the rebuke is an eye-opening examination of some of the people in Corinth who most likely do not possess such a spirit, and therefore he is calling forth the, the reality that they don't believe and have the true love of God in them. So we need to understand that God's message, or John's message about God's love, defines for us a true definition of love. So that we can see sacrifice, so that we can see faithfulness, so that we can see grace and mercy poured out unconditionally. What love is not in church is what the world communicates love to be. It's not sentimentality. It's not a, a, the, the hair raising on the back of your neck feeling that you might get with someone that's attracted to you or you're attracted to them. That might be attraction, it's not love. Matter of fact, the, the beauty of chapter 13 in this list that Paul gives us in verses 4 through 7 is that all these descriptions of love are verbs. <coughs> it's, they're action verbs. They're telling us that love requires not some emotion, or sentimentality, it requires an action. That our volition, that our will acts upon others in love. <coughs> and so, Paul's message to the church is that if love exists in you, it will be manifested to others by the Spirit of God. Just as He has given you these gifts, He gives you love to display to others. R.C. Sproul says, to say that love is of God means that love belongs to or is the possession of God. He possesses it as a property of his divine being and an attribute 
It also means that love is ultimately from God. Therefore, whenever love is manifested, it points back to its ground, its owner, its source, God himself. Again, this does not mean that all love is God, but it does mean that all genuine love proceeds from God and is rooted in him. We talk about the mission of the church. The mission of the church is for us to give people, the world, out, in, in, out beyond these walls in our lives, give them a true and proper definition of the love of God. And how will they see that? By us communicating the word which describes that love and by showing the love of God in us. Because it's there if we belong to him. Therefore, when we display love to one another, we are reflecting the character of God in a world that does not understand such love. But interestingly, that world who does not understand the true love of God, yet tries to emulate that love. And this is the deception that goes on in our world. Satan is trying to convince the world of what, what he would say is genuine love. These substitutionary or these substitutes of love that are not true and they're not genuine, but he has convinced us of those things. Those feelings. Those emotions. Satan says, oh, that's love. That lust, oh, that's love. And we buy into that. And the world buys into those things. Because they make us feel a certain way. And what we've done when we buy into those things is we've wandered away from the truth of who God is and what his love truly represents. We've bought into a worldly love, not a world that is sacrificial, or not a love that is sacrificial, not a love that is unconditional. Oftentimes you hear the world say, well, I love them because they love me. That's conditional. I love them because I'm attracted to them. That's conditional. You wouldn't love them if you were blind, because you could be attracted to them. The love of God says that while we were enemies, Christ died for us. That's the love of God. The love of God that's willing to sacrifice, that's willing to pursue, that's willing to forgive and wash away sin, to overlook offenses, to literally give a very his, his own life so that we might understand the true love of God. And so church, we are a shadow and a glimpse of the love of God in this world. When we represent as the church the love of God, we are showing the world what heaven will be like for all eternity by displaying godly love to one another. Commentator Thistleton says, Love represents the power of the new age, breaking into the present, the only vital force which has a future. Love is that quality which distinctively stamps the light of heaven, where regard and respect for the other dominates the character of life of God as the communion of saints and heavenly hosts. But love abides as the character of heavenly eschatological existence. You are a picture of heaven. As the church, when you display the love of God, not just to the world, but to each other. This is why Paul's 
stern words are important for us in the church today. It calls us to look in the mirror. It challenges us to say, are we as individual believers showing the love of Christ to others? Because as John tells us, it is the examination by which we know if the love of God truly rests in us. The fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5 can be almost succinctly compared to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. All the attributes of someone who has the Spirit of God that Paul gives us in Galatians 5 is on display in 1 Corinthians 13 in this description of love that comes from God. Almost succinctly. <coughs> so, let's look at 1 Corinthians 13, 1 and 2. What I would call loveless gifts. <coughs> loveless gifts. Paul says, if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. These loveless gifts that Paul is talking about here, most specifically, he deals first with the tongues of men and of angels. These verses have become debatable in the church because of what Paul says in verse 1. And the debate circles around the term tongues of men and angels. What does Paul mean by the tongues of men and angels? Well, we first need to recognize that Paul uses the word tongues of men, therefore solidifying the argument that tongues in the church are human languages. They're human languages. They're not ecstatic utterances or gibberish and babbling that we might see in the modern-day Pentecostal worship gatherings. These are the tongues of men. And these tongues that Paul are referencing are the same that were practiced in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost. So Paul says, well, what if, or, or Paul also mentions the tongues of angels. By Paul's use of this term, many have taken hold of this phrase and developed some theology of the language of heaven, whereby a, power, a person empowered by the Spirit can speak angelic languages, unknown to any human but instead a language directed to God. But this is where much of that practice in Pentecostalism comes from, from this one phrase, the tongues of angels. Let me give you two reasons why we cannot interpret it in such a way. Number one, the Bible tells us to never build a theology on one verse or phrase in the Bible. Don't ever build a theology on just one verse or phrase. Nowhere else in the Bible does the idea of an angelic language, uh, is, is an angelic language mentioned. In fact, when angels communicate to men, they communicate in the language that men understand and that women understand. So that Mary hears the angels and she doesn't need an interpreter to tell her what the angel was saying about the birth of Christ. Instead, she knows exactly what these words are because these angels were speaking human languages. Never build a theology on one verse. The consistency and the cumulative study of angelic speech is always in words that humans understand. Number two, never ignore the grammar of the passage. If we build a theology from this one phrase 
about the ability of the Holy Spirit empowering believers to speak angelic languages, that we're ignoring the grammatical style that Paul is writing in. You will see and understand in just a second that verses 1 through 3 are written in hyperbole. For those who slept through much of their English grammar or who have forgotten, hyperbole is exaggeration to bring about some emphasis in the sentence. Let's refresh our memories about hyperbole this afternoon. I'm going to say a phrase. I think it will be up on the screen. You tell me the answer. You ready? This is an interactive. You don't get this very often, so enjoy it. Here we go. Number one. It's raining. Yeah. Oh, it's good. Y'all are great. Number two. My car cost me. I am so hungry I can eat a horse or an elephant. I was going to say elephant. Yeah. <clears throat> and last, he's so mad he's spitting fire. Bullets, people, bullets. <laughs> fire. <laughs> that's, actually, that's, that's not exaggeration. You can actually spit fire. <laughs> Paul uses his hyper, 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 hyperbole. <laughs> he uses this grammatical style to exaggerate for us. He's bringing the extreme into these ideas. Follow along with me. If I could speak the tongues of men and angels, that's extreme. That's, that's, that's an exaggeration of the extreme. If I have all prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have all faith, if I give all my possessions to the poor, if I surrender my life to be burned, my entire existence... You see the exaggeration here. This is hyperbole. So Paul's not defining for us the difference between language of angels and language of men. He's speaking in hyperbole for a very specific reason. He's saying, look, if you had the most extreme and most powerful uses of spiritual gifts and, you let, and yet you lack love, if you can do uh, take the, the, the gift of tongues to the extreme, the very existence of divine languages, or you can take prophecy to the extreme and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and yet you lack love, what does he say? You're nothing. You have no value. Because loveless gifts do not serve the church, they do not represent Christ, they are useless. And so in verse 1, the gift discusses as tongues, stated as the tongues of men, which we'll learn more about in chapter 14, Paul was seeing how tongues was this primary gift that was being abused and causing division in the church. And he wants them to understand that you can practice these gifts, but to do so without love, he says, is like a clashing and clanging sound of brass and cymbals. Now, he uses these, these two terms in chapter 13, verse 1, the noisy gong or the clanging symbol, most likely to draw the attention of the Corinthians to the pagan worship in Corinth. False gods like Dionysus and others, where they used these type of instruments and, and, and brass to uh, participate in the pagan worship, oftentimes inappropriate prostitute engaged worship, if you're following my drift. This cultic worship 
that did not honor the Lord. And Paul is reminding them that to practice gifts in the church without love is a, an annoying sound. It's a, it's, a, it's a sound that reverberates into hollowness. It reverberates into uh, a reflection of godlessness. It's useless, is his point. Second, Paul mentions that those who might have all knowledge and all mysteries and yet, and yet lack love. Again, it's impossible for us as human beings to possess all knowledge and know all mysteries of God. Jeremiah tells us that. That there are mysteries of God that we will never understand. We will never come to in our minds. So when we begin to hold so tightly to the things that we know in a way that it divides our uh, love with other people, we are allowing these gifts to supersede the very love of God, the very character of God's love that's with us. He uses the same example with faith. Paul is acknowledging that this level of faith which could move mountains, again, in exaggeration, if you had that ability, if it was possible, and yet you lacked love, it was worthless. These are gifts that we might practice, but we must practice them first as we love and consider others more important than ourselves. See, the truth is, is that in Corinth, these gifts became another way that these believers were dividing themselves. You'll remember, in chapter 1 and 2, we saw how wisdom was creating factions among the, the church. That there was literally factions where someone with Paul and someone with Apollos. We saw these divisions unhelpful and hurting the church. Later on, we saw they were allowing sexual sin to divide the church. That sin was being remaining present, not being dealt with in the church, ignored, overlooked, swept under the rug. And again, it was causing great division among the church. And then there was Christian liberty, where the people were touting their Christian liberty in such a way that they weren't considering the, the weaker brothers and sisters in the, in the body of Christ. And what were they doing? They were lacking love, and it was causing division. They weren't thinking about the needs of other people. Perhaps they were touting these gifts as if they were some famous and important person in the church. And this can happen to any of us. We, we get into positions in the church. We, we take our responsibility for the church, and these two can divide us in such a way where we think that we're better than other people. And instead of loving them and caring for them and being willing to sacrifice for them as God's love demonstrates, we feel that needs to be done for us. And so really, Paul is trying to remind them with the concluding phrases of these verses. He says, listen, if you have these gifts and not love, you are nothing. If you have these gifts and you don't have love, you have no value. If you have these gifts and you give all but lack love, it profits you or value, and it gives you no benefit or no value. 
Paul says, what you really need is to understand his humility. That's what you need. Because God's love manifested in us is always going to produce humility. When you think about the sovereign love and grace that God has given you, you acknowledge, if you are honest with yourself, that you have provided nothing. You have accomplished nothing in the eyes of God to receive such a love. You might excel at work. You might excel in the sports field or in athletics. You might ex ex excel with your intellect and achieve great things, but with your spiritual condition, you have achieved nothing. God's love has been manifested on you only by His grace. And that humbles us. It acknowledges who we are without God and His love and who we are because of God and His love, which He demonstrates through His Son, Jesus Christ. So Paul kind of concludes with exaggeration in verse 3. He says, if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. It profits me nothing. Charles Hodge says, a man may give away his whole estate or sacrifice himself and be in no sense the gainer. He may do all this from vanity and from the fear of perdition and to purchase heaven and only increase his condemnation. Religion is no such, easy, no such an easy thing. Men would gladly compound by external acts of obedience or by penances for a change of heart, but the thing is impossible. Thousands indeed are deluded on this point and think that they can substitute what is outward for what is inward, but God requires the heart. And without holiness, the most liberal giver or the most suffering ascetic can never see God. How many people, how many people are suffering in the eternal flames of hell because they have thought? And if they just give away all that they have, that they can earn a place in the kingdom. The rich young ruler understood it enough to walk away from Jesus. He understood enough to say, it's too much. I can't even give enough of my possessions away to earn my place in heaven, and I choose not to. Paul supposes that to do so in lack love is an empty sacrifice. And in the same way, no matter how much we may give, no matter how much we may serve, if we lack the true love of God that is sacrificial and gracious and long-suffering as we will read, we are merely engaging in empty rituals. Let me ask you, why do you come to church each week? Why are you here? Are you here for show? Are you here to find some acknowledgement with other people? Would you come if you were the only one? Would you sit in this place and listen to me preach if you were the only one? 
Are you trying to gain some acceptance before God? As if God would give you an attaboy and pat you on the back? Say, if you did enough, you've come to church enough. You're accepted into the kingdom. Maybe you're just looking for friends. And you think, you know, church is a good place for friends. They're probably honest people there. They're probably good people. Maybe I'll just come to church and get some friends that won't lead me astray and, and make me do the things or lead me and tempt me to do the things I don't need to do. Or maybe you're a young person, a teenager, and you just come because your parents made you come. Would you come if they didn't come to church? Would you come if they were no longer here? See, we come to worship because the love of God compels us. We don't come to see other people. That's a benefit. We come because we understand the love of God that has been manifested to us in Jesus, and we want to worship Him. That's why we come. And so it's natural. It's natural to want to worship the one who has given so much. It's natural to want to, to produce and disperse and distribute the love of God to other people. We would say that we've been so transformed that we can't help it. Now, that doesn't mean we're perfect at it. So don't misunderstand me. Because as I go through this list next week, you're like, listen, love is patient. Woo. I must be lost. It doesn't say love is perfectly patient. It doesn't say love is always kind. But it's a helpful reminder to use God's word as an examination of our heart to see if our desire is to love. If you are squeezing love out of you every week and it exhausts you, then you might need to consider do you possess the love of God in your life. We go back to 1 John 4, 7 and 8. John says, Let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves, does it say is good? Everyone who loves is good? No. It says everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. That's the transformation that has to happen the transformation of the regenerative work of the Holy Spirit has to occur so that we can truly love other people because we have understood the love of God. He has saved us. He has stamped it in our lives. And therefore, because we have been born of God and we know God, we love other people. And look at what he says in verse 8. The one who does not love does not know God. For God is love. It's that simple. He says it again in chapter 3, by this the children of God and the children devil and of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor does the one who does not love his brother. It's an examining truth. Examine your hearts, friend. Examine your hearts so that you are not the person in hell who thinks they have done enough to get to heaven when all you needed to realize was that the love of God was not in you. And you can see it because you don't desire to love other people. 
that's you, understand that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. The opportunity, the opportunity to surrender your life and surrender your affections and your desires to the one who truly saves is available. So that you may understand and know and possess the love of God. Therefore, being able to distribute it to others. But you can't fake it. You can't manufacture it. It only comes from the spiritual chain of the heart. We'll look more at these verses 4 through 7 next week as we understand this love more, uh, more specifically. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for... These truths from Paul. God, helping us understand your love for us. We are thankful that, that you love the world, that you so love the world, that you gave your only Son so that whoever believes in you will not perish but have everlasting life. God, I pray for those here today that have not been transformed by your power and spirit. They are seeking to live their lives, earning some way to heaven, trusting in their own strength, in their own moral aptitude.